My name is Caleb Lynch, and I am the lead pastor here at Open Door Fellowship Church. If you're just joining us, if you're new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, It is fun to see new faces, and uh, we've got a few today, and that is fun stuff for me. Um, Hey, we've we've got a bunch to cover today, and I kind of need you guys with me. Is that all right to ask? Like, could you be here with me? And we got a lot of verses, and I'm about to fall, and um, I just need you. So we, we currently are in a series called Real Jesus, Real People, and I would encourage you, if you're just now joining us, go back and listen to it. Uh, it, is, it has been a great uh, unpacking of who this person Jesus is in probably the most thorough account of who he is, which is the, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we, we've talked about it several times, but the Gospel of Luke is the longest written uh, account of Jesus's life, and we are trying to go as best we can verse by verse. We're covering a lot, um, and so we do kind of skip around a bit, but we are doing the best we can to get through it, and it has been a blessing. So one of the things I asked you to do at the start of it was to read the Gospel of Luke by yourself when you had time. And we just kind of said, just kind of keep reading through it. So once you get done with it, if we're still in the series, go back at it again. And uh, so I hope you're doing that. Uh, I've heard from many of you that you are and that it has been a great gift uh, to you and to your life and that it is filling you up with, uh, with great joy. So that, that encourages me. Um, we today, we're, we're kind of, I'm stealing a little quote from one of the verses that we're going to get into, but I want to put it up on the screen. The title for today is, Who Do You Say That I Am? Who do you say that I am? At one point, and we'll get there, um, there are different rumors of who Jesus Christ is, and Jesus Christ is hanging out with his 12 best dudes, his homies, and he asks them, he just poses the question, he says, but who do you say that I am? A lot of people are saying I'm a lot of different things. Who do you say that I am? And um, personal belief here, personal belief here, uh, I believe it's the most important question for any of us to answer uh, in this world. I think it's the most important question is for us to be able to say clearly who we believe Jesus Christ is. And I believe uh, that depending upon the answer to that question, it will dictate um, not only your life now and how you see it and how you live it and what it looks like, but it will dictate your eternity. It will dictate the rest of your existence, whether it be here on earth uh, or past. And I believe it is that powerful uh, of a thought, of a question, and I believe the answer is that important. So we're going to ask it today. Um, a couple of things I want to share with you that, that were profound in the discovery for me, uh, 92%, 92% of Americans, so this is just a poll done here in the United States, 92% believe that Jesus was actually a real person. So when we, when we interview all large amounts of uh, Americans, 92% of them say, yeah, I believe Jesus actually showed up on earth, walked, breathed, was a real human being. Of that 92%, of those 92 believe that Jesus is actually God. 31% believe that Jesus lived a sinless life and therefore had the power to be the perfect sacrifice for us. 
and 37% of all people have no idea, claim they have no idea what will happen after they die. 37% of Americans admit they have no idea what will happen after they die. 37% is a big number. Every major religion, for the most part, if you look at the top 15 major religions of the world, um, all of them believe that Jesus actually existed. The Jewish people believe Jesus was Mary's son, that he was a teacher, that he was a rabbi, that he had many disciples, uh, that he was respected, that he could perform miracles, that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, and that he was crucified on a cross. Muslims believe Jesus was born of a virgin, is to be revered and respected, was a prophet, a wise teacher who was able to do miracles, that he ascended into heaven, and that he will come again. Muslims believe that about Jesus. Hindus believe Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and a god, a god. Buddhists believe Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. New Age religion, Sedona, uh, believe... (laughs) maintain that Jesus was a wise moral teacher and many of his instructions are valid ways to live. I, I believe... My conviction, and I believe it's consistent with the Word of God, I believe that just believing that Jesus showed up and was a good thinker and did some incredible things is not enough to get you to heaven. I I believe that. I also believe that there is one of the most destructive things that has happened uh, since pretty much the beginning of time with humans and what we do with God, and and I'll, I'll title it this way, I believe we try to make God in our image. Um, if you read Genesis, it claims that we, humans, were made in the image of God. We're image bearers of God. But I think humans, what we, what we like to do uh, is we try to return the favor to God, and we try to make Him in our image. You hear it all the time. Just listen for it. You'll hear people all the time saying, well, the God I believe in wouldn't do this. The God I believe in wouldn't engage with those type of people. The God I believe in probably wouldn't have voted for that president. Right? Like, we just, you just hear it. You just hear people saying these kinds of things. One of my favorite, all-time favorite quotes is by a lady named Anne Lamont. And she said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when, he tur- when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> we so want him to be, um, we so want him to be what we want him to be that sometimes we miss who he is and who he's trying to reveal to us that he is. We're going to look at uh, a bunch of different verses. I'm telling you, I need you. We're, we're, going, we're going heavy with the verses today. But we're going to look at a bunch of different verses, and we're going to look at uh, a couple of different things. We're going to look at some declaration from God 
of who he says Jesus is. We're going to look at Jesus saying who he is. We're going to look at disciples saying who he is. We're going to see people motivated because of who they think he is and what he's going to do. We're going to see a bunch of different things. So just kind of hang in there with me, absorb the stories for what they are, and we'll kind of work our way through, and I think it'll be a gift. So if you've got your Bible, we're in Luke 9, and we're going to start in verse 7. It says this, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard all about what was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. This is John the Baptist. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John... I I beheaded him. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod is kind of the big dude in town. He's like the ruler guy. And he's hearing a lot about this Jesus that is doing some crazy, amazing things. And people are saying, it might be John the Baptist. He's like, no, no, I, I killed that guy. And others are saying, it might be Elijah or some prophet. And he's going, either way, I've got to go figure out what's going on, who this guy is. I, I think there's probably some of us in this room that you are at a place in your life where you go, um, I, I've been hearing a lot about this Jesus, and I don't quite know what I believe about him yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go try to seek it out and see if I can find some answers. And I, I hope you're here, and I hope that that's what brought you here, and I hope that today you discover more of who he is and what that looks like for your life. Uh, Elijah is one of the people that they think um, Jesus is. He shows up, Jesus is doing these miracles, he's saying things, uh, he's quoting scripture, he's fulfilling things in scripture. Uh, Prophets are saying this is what it's going to look like when he comes, and he's doing certain things, and uh, people assume it's Elijah. And you go, why wouldn't they assume that it was the Messiah? Why wouldn't they assume it was the Savior? Why is the conclusion that they come to is that he's either John the Baptist, the final prophet, the forerunner for the Messiah, or that he's Elijah? Why are these the ones that they're concluding to? If you were to take your Bible and you were to split it in half, you've got the New Testament, the Old Testament. It's not really the halfway point, but it's where the Bible says it's halfway. Um, and if you were to go to the last two verses in the Old Testament, it's in Malachi. Uh, Malachi is a prophet. He's someone that tells about God and what's happening. And he, it's the last two verses. He says that before the Lord comes, Elijah will return. Elijah will return. If you've ever gone to a Passover Seder dinner... Uh, we pour a glass of wine and we set a table for Elijah. And we leave the front door open for him to come. The Jewish religion, the Hebrews, the people of God, believed before the Messiah showed up, Elijah Elijah was going to show up. And so the Messiah had yet to come, and they're going, well, it's got to be Elijah then, right? If there's going to be some great dude showing up before another dude, it's got to be this dude. Right? What we believe is that Elijah will be showing up when Jesus rides in on a white horse. We believe Elijah will be there. I personally believe he's one of the two witnesses that you see in Revelations 11, uh, along with Moses, which we'll see in a second. 
if I forget to tell you about that, interrupt me and ask me to tell you about it. Does that make sense? Okay. You with me? You staying? Okay, here we go. We're still going. I'm skipping a story because it's not that big of a deal. It's the story about uh, Jesus feeding 5,000 people <laughs> with a couple of little small things. Um, the reason I'm skipping it is that it's a lot to read. And um, no, uh, the thing that I find significant in the conversation we're having today doesn't actually get recorded in Luke's account of this feeding of the 5,000. It gets recorded in John's account. So I want to read. uh, It's not going to be up on the board, but I want to read to you what happened uh, right after Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He, He did a miracle. They only had a couple loaves of fish, and he fed a bunch of people. Loaves of fish. See what I did. Um... I thought you were with me. I had to be the one to tell you the joke that I did. And anyway, okay. This is what John says in his gospel account of, of this story. This is right after it's just happened. This is John six fifteen. He's talking about Jesus. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He performs this miracle. He's been performing miracles. He's been doing some amazing things. And Jesus perceives, holy cow, they're about to put a crown on my head. They're about to make me king. They're going to take me by force, and they're going to make me king. And you go, yeah, Jesus, wouldn't that be like the point? Like, aren't you like the king of kings? Like, isn't that your, your thing? And Jesus leaves the scene and goes, we're not going to let that happen. And he goes to be by himself. You go, uh, Jesus, hey. But here's the deal. Um, this was not his time to wear a crown. This was his time uh, to wear a cross. And um, the beautiful thing about Jesus is he knows his authority. He knows his power. He knows his position in history. He knows what he has to do. And he has to become savior before he gets to become king. And he will be king, and he will reign forever. But before he does that, he has to save his people. And so he leaves, and he goes away. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Here we go. Right after this, this is Luke 9, 18 through 20, so we're back in our text. Uh, It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. We need to work on defining the word alone. As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, well, some say you're John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that that you're one of the prophets of old that is risen. Then he said to them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, well, I think you're the Christ of God. In other versions, he says, I think you're the Christ, the Son of God. In other, uh, other gospel accounts. In, in Hebrew, uh, this word Christ is the word for Messiah. Messiah is literally this idea of someone that will save us, someone that will redeem us, someone that will restore us back to the way 
that it was supposed to be. And so for much of the Hebrew tradition, this was a looking back essentially to the garden, to this restoration of union with God. And as the history of God's people went along, they had a bunch of cruel people that ruled them. They got kicked out of their land. They got taken advantage of. They got beaten. They got sold. They got a lot of things done poorly to them. And so this idea of a Messiah turned much more into, we need someone to save us from these crooked rulers. The original design of Messiah was to restore us back to the garden, to where that union with God was pure and, and, um, and right. The word Christ in Greek uh, is the word anointed one, anointed one. And um, there are only three people in, uh, in the history of the people of God that ever got anointed. Only three types of people. The first one were kings. The king of Israel, if you were the king of God's people, um, you were anointed. Anointed with oil on your head, you were declared the chosen one, anointed. The other person that would get anointed was the high priest. And the high priest was that bridge between the people and God. He was the one that would go into the holies of holies. He was the one, the intercessory person between the people of God and God himself. This was the high priest and he would be anointed. And the final person that gets anointed is we see prophets got anointed. These people that spoke for God would get anointed. The beautiful thing is when we use this word Christ in Hebrew, we are calling Jesus the anointed one, and he fulfills all three. He is the great high priest, he is the king, and he is the word, he is the prophet. Isn't that cool? Luke nine twenty one through 22. So Peter just said, I think you're the Christ, and it says this, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Do you see that, uh, that name in there that Jesus calls himself, the Son of Man? you see that in there? It's like the third line down on the left. Son of Man. Um, that name for Jesus is given in just the Gospels alone is given 80 times. So the Gospels, uh, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the accounts of Jesus. They just tell the story of Jesus. So if you ever want to learn about Jesus, just read the Gospels. Uh, maybe start in John. It's my favorite. Um, but the Son of Man is, is used 80 times to describe the person of Jesus Christ. And, and here's what's crazy. The only person that uses it is Jesus himself. It's the only one in all of the gospel accounts that uses the name Son of Man and he uses it for himself. There's only one other person in the New Testament that uses it at all, and it's a guy named Stephen. And it's right before Stephen actually uh, gets stoned, he declares the name Son of Man. But other than that account, the only time in the New Testament that the name Son of Man is used is by Jesus himself. Isn't that cool? He had his own nickname for his own self. That's kind of cool. The, the, the name Son of Man literally means the word is human. All throughout the Old Testament, you see it in the Psalms, you see it in the prophets, you see it 
uh, in, in Old Testament scripture way, way back. They used this phrase, son of man, all the time. And it literally just meant human, human. When Jesus is using it, he is not simply meaning human. I want to remind us of a time he uses it. This is in Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. And this is Jesus. He's been arrested and he's about to be hung on a cross. And they're questioning him. And it says this, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, are you the living God? Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. And then he said these words, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember those words, clouds of heaven. He's stealing this phrase from uh, someone else in the Bible. This title, Son of Man, he's stealing actually from a prophet whose name was Daniel. Daniel uh, was a, a devout disciple of Jesus Christ, of God. Didn't know Jesus yet. But at one night, he's having these visions. He's having these visions of someone that will come, that will rule and reign and, and have something to say about evil. Will actually have power over evil. And here's what he said. I saw in a night's vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there come one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. This is thousands of years before Jesus shows up. And Jesus chooses this name for himself, the Son of Man. And so as soon as he declared that to the high priest in that moment, they're like, oh, I know what he's saying. Probably when he used the clouds and the heaven part was the kicker. And they said, put him on a cross. He's claiming not only to be the Messiah, but he's also claiming a dominion of glory and of God. Luke 9, 23 through 27. And he said to, the, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man, there it is again, be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom of God. That final line um, is, is really simple just to define. Uh, Jesus says there are some of you that will not die um, before seeing the kingdom of God arrive. And the kingdom of God is ushered in the moment that Jesus Christ is raised from the grave. That is when the kingdom of God is ushered into humanity. And he says, there's people amongst you that will not die 
until they see this. That's, that's an interesting line there. This, this text here about taking up your cross and following Jesus, uh, I find it to be um, one of the more misused, misinterpreted uh, bits of Scripture at times. Uh, the, I, I heard just recently, uh, I was, this was maybe a month ago now, I heard someone talking about uh, how, how lousy of a spouse they had, how they hated their job, how their kids were a pain in the neck, and they were listing all these things, and then they followed it with this phrase, but this is just my cross to bear. But this is just my cross to bear. And what you've got to understand, this statement, um, this statement is not about daily living as much as it's about salvation, putting your trust in Jesus Christ. This is, this is a salvation statement. And so essentially what that person was saying, and they, weren't, they didn't know they were saying this, but essentially what they were saying is, by me putting up with my lousy spouse and my kids and my poor job, this is what will get me to heaven. Right? That's just that's probably, they didn't know they were doing that. They just, it was just a, a saying. But this also gets used in a way um, about this death to self. You hear it a lot in Christian circles. I, I need to die to myself. And I want to read you something. Uh, this is by a guy named Andrew Farley. And he's, he's, he's a thinker, uh, what we would call a new covenant thinker. So he really spends a lot of time thinking about now that Jesus has died and risen again, what does that mean? And so he, he, he doesn't spend as much time in the Old Testament as he does really looking at what is the reality now that what has happened with Jesus has happened. And he's probably one of the best thinkers uh, at it. If you get a chance, buy this book. It's like a phenomenal book. It's called Twisted Scriptures. The staff, Open Door staff, we just spent uh, like four months going through it. We went, uh, there's like 45 lies. It's really cool. Too much information. Okay, here's what he says about this death to self phrase. The phrase, die to self, may be popular Christian jargon, but it does not appear in the Bible. The closest thing we find is where Paul writes, our old self was crucified with Christ. That's Romans 6.6. 6. Note that was crucified is in the past tense, expressing this idea that death has already taken place. Therefore, uh, do we believers need to die to self if our old self has already died? The answer is a resounding no. But didn't Jesus teach his followers that they had to continually die to self and die, deny themselves? Actually, no. Jesus is saying what death must... What, no, sorry. Jesus is saying that a death must occur before any fruit can be born. He is referencing to salvation experience, not an ongoing death after salvation. This is why he speaks of hating one's current life in the world. When we choose to place our faith in Christ, it's because we've come to the realization that life in the world doesn't fulfill. We recognize that we need life in Christ instead. At that moment, in order to be spiritually reborn, we must first die. Galatians 2.20 states, I have been crucified with Christ. In Romans 6.6, 6, we read, Our old self was crucified. At salvation, we died with Christ so that we can be raised to newness of life. Cool? Good? Luke 9.28-35. Let's keep rolling. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John 
and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And when he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. That's in there. That's in the Bible. That event, that happened. That's crazy. But it happened. Um, We could spend five weeks just talking about this right here. There's so much depth. There's so much importance. There's so much nuance in it. There's so much reality being shown. Um, There's so much importance to the characters that are in it. Uh, And and I wish we had more time. But I will pull out a couple quick things just just so we can be aware of. The first one, uh, there, there is like 10 or 15 things that people use to say that the Bible doesn't agree with itself and it's, it's poorly written and it's... Da, da, da. There's about 15 of them, okay? And one of them is this silly little thing here. Luke says this event happens eight days later. So you read it right at the start. It says eight days later, they went up on this mountain. All the other Gospels record it as six days later. Oops. Eight and six. Here's the thing you need to know. Luke, coming from the medical field... Um, he, he writes this in terms where he counts the days. So it's, it's like uh, over the next eight days is what it was, where they were counting days after. Here's a better example. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it clearly. We talk about Jesus raising from the grave uh, after three days, right? Well, really what it was is three days later. If you do the math, it's not like three days later, right? It's over the next three days. Does that make sense? So they're just doing it a little different, and Luke's like wicked smart, so he does it the right way, and there you go. Um, One of my favorite parts of this story, because I can see myself being like Peter in this, Peter's standing there, and he sees Moses, he sees Elijah, he sees Jesus, they're all standing there, and he goes, hey, Jesus, what if we, I got an idea, what if we made three tents, and we all just stayed here forever? Would that be it? And then immediately this cloud shows up and this voice comes out of a cloud that says, hey, um, this Jesus is my son and he's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. And be quiet and listen to him. And what does it say? The next verse says, and they were silent and listened to him. Peter's like, hey, let's do this. Let's do this. And then this voice comes and he's like, I'm just going to stay quiet for a bit. As something, something for me to learn. Why, why Moses? Why Elijah? 
uh, this is significant, really significant. When we, when we look at the character, the person of Moses from, from Old Testament Scripture, Moses represents the law, right? Remember, God gave on Mount Sinai, he gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses. So Moses is there representing the law. Elijah, we already talked about Elijah, he's there representing the prophets. And essentially, remember, the cloud comes, and God says, this is my anointed one, and the cloud goes away, and who's left? Just Jesus, right? So what's being declared is a couple of things. One, Jesus is greater, superior. Go, go read in Hebrews about this. It's all over it. But on top of it, what he's saying, too, is he is the fulfillment of not only the law, but the prophets. The prophets declared and validated that Jesus is who he's claiming to be. So not only is he the fulfillment of the law, remember what the law was there to do, if you, if you could follow these rules, you could be right with God. Jesus is now that thing. If you can trust in Jesus, you are right with God because he abolished the law and paid for all of the unrighteousness so that you might be righteous, so that you may wear the robe of righteousness. And, and, and he is validated. He is validating all the prophets. Does that make sense why those two characters are there? I believe those two will be the two witnesses at the very end. Neither of them really died the normal way. And there's verses that talk about they're coming back. There's a lot of information that I don't really know, but that's one thing that I think will happen is that there'll be the two witnesses um, before the second coming of Jesus. And I think that'll be a, a pretty cool deal. Questions? Good, thanks. Let's keep going. <laughs> Luke nine thirty-seven through 43. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead here in a little bit, but I want, I want, to, get, I want to get this one. Um, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out and convulses him, and so that he foams at the mouth and, he sh and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they, they could not do it. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Do you have a hard time when Jesus doesn't act the way you think he would act or say the things you think he would say? I don't generally, when I think of Jesus, I don't think of him saying, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to put up with you? I don't know if that's how he said it. Um, can I tell you why he said it? Because I think it helps. I, I don't think he's fully saying it in the tone that we think he's saying it in. Um, if you go back, just turn back. We, we were just there last week, uh, and I actually didn't preach on it because I forgot to, but it was uh, Luke 9, 1 through 7, actually 1 and 2, and it says this. It says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He took his 12 homies and he said, listen, 
I'm giving you all the power you need to cast out demons and to heal whoever you need to. Now go do it. Like eight days later or six days or whatever you want to call it, they, they come down a mountain and this guy says, hey, listen, I, I tried to have your disciples do it and they couldn't do it. And Jesus is going, are you kidding me? Like I gave you every single thing you would have needed to do this. How long do I have to be with you for you to be convinced that my power is enough within you? I need that, I need that message like loud and clear. I need Jesus to ask me, Caleb, like for real, man, like when are you going to start trusting that I'm in you and that I'm enough and that I have the power to do work within you? Like how long do I got to be with you <laughs> for you to be convinced of it? Make sense? Love it. I love this part. This is Luke 9, 44 through 45. 44 and 45. So this has just happened, and he turns to his disciples after saying this to them, like, hey, dudes, like, how long do I got to be with you? Come on. And then he says this. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I don't know why it was concealed from them. It doesn't say. I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I don't know why. But I find this interesting. After each one of those moments, when he's fed the 5,000, when he's done this miraculous thing, he... He grabs his disciples and he says, listen to me. You've got to understand. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm laying my life down. And they're going, hey, do the miracle thing. You're the king, right? You're the guy. Like, let's go. Right? And he's like, stop, stop. Hold on a second. You have no idea what I have to do first. And, and they keep going. And, and we're going to skip over these next couple of verses, but I want you to read them on your own time. But but really what happens is they just keep walking down this path. They're on their way to Jerusalem and for, for the festival. And they keep asking him these questions and they're just not really getting it, right? And, and they start talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And all the while, Jesus is trying to define a kingdom ethic of servanthood, of what it looks like to give your life away, not to exalt yourself. And so he gives them different examples of a kid and then they're like, well, yeah, but what about this guy? He was like doing miracles in your name, Jesus. He's not one of us. Like we're the, we're the guys, right? Like we're the ones that do it. And Jesus is like, listen, like if he's for us, like let him be for us. And let us keep going. Luke 9, um, where we want to be? We want to be in 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him to come. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Uh, I want to I give some context to this because the, the language is interesting 
And uh, it says he set his face to Jerusalem and they wouldn't receive him. And I, I just want to help us understand what's going on. So they're on their way to the festival, the Passover. This is, this is the, everyone uh, of the people of God go to Jerusalem for this big event. Um, the Samaritans did not believe that the holy place of God was in the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own house of worship and they believed that when the true Messiah came, that he would declare this house of worship to be the correct one. Does this make sense? So Jesus is traveling along the way, and there's a Samaritan village, and he sends people ahead of him to say, hey, I'm coming, get me a bedroom, get my, get my little posse a place to stay, we're coming. And they say, well, where, where are you going? Like we, and he goes, well, we're heading to Jerusalem. For the, and by the way, we think he's the Messiah. And they go, well, he can't be the Messiah. If he was the true Messiah, he wouldn't be heading to Jerusalem. He'd be staying here to worship here. And so they did not receive him. And that's why Peter goes, do you, should we just burn him to the ground? What do you think? And Jesus goes, no, let's, let's hold off on that. They're going to have enough fire later on. That's a bad joke. So here's the question again. Who is Jesus Christ? We see a lot of different stories. We see a lot of different declaration of who he is. We see a lot of different words. We see a lot of people that received him, that didn't receive him, that wanted him to do certain things, that thought he was king. And, and who is this Jesus Christ? C.S. Lewis, I'll, I'll kind of leave you with a couple of thoughts. C.S. Lewis, he writes this, you, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that part open to us. He did not intend to. There's this pastor, a great thinker right now. His name's David Platt. Um, and, and here's a great story that he tells. He says this, I remember sitting outside a Buddhist temple in Indonesia. Men and women filled the elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they daily performed their, their religious rituals. Meanwhile, I was engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in that particular community. They were discussing how all religions are fundamentally the same and only specifically different. We may have different views about small issues, one of them said, but when it comes down to the essential issues, each of our religion is the same. I listened for a while, and then they asked me what I thought. And I said, it sounds like as though you both picture God, or whatever you call God, at the top of a mountain. It seems as if you believe that we are all at the mountain, and I may, might, may take one route up the mountain, and you may take another route, but we will all end up at the same place. They smiled as I spoke, happily. Exactly, you understand, they said. Then I leaned in, and I said, now let me ask you a question. 
What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to where you are? What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for his people to find a way up to him, but instead he comes to them? They thought for a moment, and then they responded. Well, that would be amazing. I replied, let me introduce you to my friend Jesus. I believe in my heart that it's not enough to believe that Jesus just existed long ago. I believe that eternity and the fulfillment of your life now is dependent upon you believing that Jesus Christ is King, is Lord, is God, and is Messiah. That He is the Anointed One. If He is King and Lord, then He has all authority, and your obedience is to Him alone. If He is God, then His ways are correct, good, and right. We can trust His ways, His rhythms, His kingdom ethics. One of the things that I see in Jesus that He did, that I can trust because I believe He's God and I believe His way of living is probably best, one of the things I see through almost every single one of these stories was this concept that I'm, I'm now adopting. What I see is that Jesus never moved from a place of deficit. What I, say, what I mean move, he never acted, he never performed out of deficit. And here's what I mean. Constantly we would see Jesus going away to be with the Father, to pray, to have time of meditation so that he could be filled up so that then he could love and pour out. And when he realized the tank was getting empty, he didn't just push through. He said, hold on, I'm going to go hike up a mountain. I'm going to go be there for a little bit until I can get filled up. If you trust that he's God, if you trust that Jesus is God, you can trust his ways, his rhythms. You can trust that the things that he declares to be true. But I also think you have to believe that he is Messiah. And what Messiah means is that he not only is God, not only that he is deserving of all authority and your obedience, but that he's actually the path to God. It means that he is the source of life. Life now, he has freed you from the bondage of your junk and life everlasting. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, and whoever believes in his name will have life everlasting. He is the Christ, he is the anointed one, he is the son of God, the son of man, he is Lord, he is Messiah, he is the savior of the world. My prayer would be that every single person in this room would choose to believe that. Because I believe that one day the world will be judged And I believe that those who do not declare declare that Jesus Christ is these things will spend eternity not only in hell, but away from their king, from their Messiah. And so that is my prayer, that all of us would come to the conviction that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of man, that he is the one who sits in the clouds of heaven at the right hand of power, and that he has a kingdom that will never end. And I I choose to believe that, and I choose to believe that these words in Scripture are true, and that is my prayer for all of us. Let us pray.
Jesus, I'm astounded at you and the way you move. I'm astounded at the reality that they were ready to make you king and you knew the importance of serving and you knew that we needed you not just to be king in that moment, but that we needed you to save us from ourselves. And so you chose that path. And I still do not fully understand it, but I am so thankful for it. Jesus, we believe you're real. We believe that you change lives. We believe that you are the only hope, that you are the living hope. We believe that you are the only way to God. And so we declare that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one else comes to the Father except through you. We love you and we give you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.